Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much once again for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you possess. That is your time. And if you're new here listening to Suncast, well, I am certain that today is going to yield an incredible return for your time. So thanks again for giving us a chance to earn your attention. You know, I don't get to say this often, but today's entrepreneur is a rocket scientist. He's also radically reinventing how we think about lead acid batteries. We'll learn today how his decade-long journey to commercialize a DOE project might just give millions of batteries new life and make them hyper-useful. Imagine if you could get a battery with the energy of lithium-ion, but the cost of lead acid, and safer than both. Sound far-fetched? Well, keep listening. Michael Burrs is the CEO and co-founder of NZinc, a startup that is developing a revolutionary type of battery based on zinc. Before becoming an entrepreneur, he also designed cruise missiles, and he's one of the most spectacular thinkers I've ever had the joy of chatting with. If you like what you hear, well, the easiest way to be reminded when the next episode comes out is by subscribing to the show in whatever podcast player it is that you choose. We have twice weekly content just like this, tactical, practical, deep advice on how to build a career with meaning. Of course, you can always check out the more than 445 additional founder stories and startup advice for the clean energy economy over at mysuncast.com. And we've been adding more detail to the show notes lately, thanks to my friends Herman and Courtney and my beautiful wife, Betsy. We've tried to include timestamps of key moments in the discussion over on the blog. It's the episodes tab over on the website if you haven't found it yet. So if you haven't taken the time to go check it out, I'd encourage you to do so. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Welcome back, Solar Warriors. I am looking forward to today's conversation because it will dig into the topic of energy storage, which many, many of you are not only migrating your careers towards, but are intensely interested in. It's going to do it in some very interesting ways, some that I think will challenge your perspective on where technology is headed and how we're going to get there, what's the best path. And uh, I want to just give a head nod to a good friend, mutual friend of today's guest and myself, Mr. John Bonanno, for helping tee up this interview. Always grateful when John can help make those introductions. Michael Burrs is the CEO and co-founder of NZinc, a green energy startup that is developing a revolutionary type of battery based on zinc, as the name would imply. We're going to talk about that and so much more. But first, let me welcome today's guest, Michael. Welcome to Suncast. Hey, thanks, Nico. It's a real pleasure. The pleasure is certainly mine. And, you know, as I get to know you, I see, as, as is the case with many uh, longtime entrepreneurs and uh, innovators, that there are so many layers to the onion. And so I'm going to start down at, um, you know, probably, probably further back than you'd want me to probe closer to the core of the onion. 
when you think of your childhood, were there particular moments that for you sparked interest in technology and maybe even showed early signs of entrepreneurship that are for you are illustrative of kind of early formation? Good question. A couple of things. One is my dad was in the army, so we traveled a lot. You know, he got assigned. We probably moved every two years, you know, to a different base. And part of that took us to Germany, where I grew up about five years in Germany. What was interesting about that is that when we came back to the United States, we really had kind of a different perspective of Mm. the role of the U.S., you know, in the world, because we had lived in a different place, not just visiting it for vacation, right, but actually living there. In fact, one of the places we lived is Oberammergau, Germany in Bavaria, but we lived what was called on the economy, not on base, but actually in town. So our neighbors were German. We shopped at German Mm. stores and so on. And the interesting thing about that was you got to see that everything that my friends in the U.S. said is, you know, we're we're the best, we're number one, wasn't necessarily Ah. true, (laughs) right? Because you saw and lived with, hey, there were some other ways to do things. And some of those were pretty damn cool. Yeah. The second part that was interesting is uh, my mom was a pilot during World War II. She had a great love of all things aerospace, airplanes. She actually was the model for, uh, and by model, I mean the person in the photograph for the North American Rockwell's Navion. And so when they were advertising the plane, you know, to sell, there she was standing in the cockpit with her leather jacket and her white scarf and all. So um, that's how I kind of got interested in technology because, uh, you know, she loved loved cars. uh, She liked to drive fast and she loved airplanes. And that kind of got translated to me. It's not every day you meet a technologist who was inspired by the complete gender flip of mom loved fast cars and flew planes. <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, it, it's, it's so fascinating. What, would, what was the conversation like around the dinner table when you were coming up? Oh, so other, other than, uh, you know, sit up straight, eat your peas kind yeah, of, exactly. you know, kind of conversations. Your, your, your bedtime is in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, there were four kids you know, with my mom and dad and four kids, uh, myself and my brother and two sisters. So everybody was kind of like two years apart. Uh, The Mm -hmm. conversations were, let's say, very structured because this was a military family. Mm. Uh, Dad sat at the head of the table. Mom was at the other end. Dad basically, you know, he was an army officer. By the way, he was military intelligence. So very smart guy, uh, just as a real quick nod uh, when I lived in England for Computer Sciences Corporation, uh, I was told we should go visit the Churchill War Rooms, which, you know, is where Churchill had the underground bunker in London, right? Wow. So we went there, uh, and I knew that my dad had been in World War II in London, and I said, uh, hey, Dad, uh, we went to visit the Churchill War Rooms, and and that was pretty cool. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's where I worked. And I went, uh, no, 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 no. This is, you know, Ministry of Defense, underground kind of stuff. He goes, yeah, well, when I was in London, uh, that's that's my assignment. I was the Pentagon's representative, you know, to work, uh, to represent the U.S. Uh, in all those planning stuff. And I went, <laughs> wow, that's really cool. <laughs> really? Never said anything. Anyway, I say that because that's kind of like 
the way our dinner table conversations, there were what was going on uh, in Europe, you know, politics, uh, but it was usually between adults that were commenting and we children had to, you know, like take notes, if you will, right? We're listening. And then we would say, oh, that's interesting. And my dad would say, well, what do you think about that? And we'd have to kind of give a a dissertation on what we thought was cool. So I'm going to make a few assumptions here. The key one is, you know, having your mother and father both in military service, your mother being a pilot gave you sort of that inkling of an idea that aerospace engineering might be a good place to start. Is that fairly accurate of how, what, what attracted you to the engineering and in particular aerospace side of your oh, career? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, what just as a quick, what were you looking? Well, well, yeah, go for well, it. Well, a quick correction is, is she was not in the military. She was a civilian that was hired by the military uh, to train oh. pilots during World War II. Oh, how interesting. So, yeah. So she was actually at the Thunderbird Fields in Arizona, where she taught primary trainers in the, what was called a link trainer, which is, you know, the uh, flight simulator, and also in PT-19s and PT-22s, PT standing for Whoa. primary trainer. It was that interest of hers, but it also was, it led the, the classic uh, she liked airplanes. I liked airplanes. I built model airplanes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, had model airplanes hanging from the ceiling, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, building things. And then that led to not just building the models, but wanting to actually, you know, build the actual aircraft, missile, whatever. I'm now really regretting that we didn't come visit you in person when I was in California <laughs> because my 10-year-old on that trip got to hang out with his best friend in Petaluma. And do you know what he came home saying he wanted to be? A pilot. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. He wants to be a pilot, although he has very much an architect engineer brain. And so I think that at some point he'll have to make that decision. Do I fly them? Do I make them? How do I structure? Yeah. I, I ended decision? up with that exact quandary because you can tell by the glasses, you know, legally blind. So yeah, there was a lot of, I want to be an astronaut. You know, I actually applied, by the way, for the mission specialist uh, at NASA. And they were kind of like, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so I figured I figured, well, if I can't actually fly them, you know, then I'll design them and build mm-hmm. them. So that's I ended up in, in that direction. Well, tell me about that. How did your career unfold in that regard? Because I think it's an interesting it's an interesting predicate to, you know, the, the ultimate decision, the decisions that led you down the path that you get went down. Sure. I mean, I was always interested in science, science, engineering, spacecraft, <laughs> so on. Oh, I was in the Boy Scouts for a little while, but I moved over to the Civil Air Patrol, which, you know, had a much more aerospace orientation. Still got to go do the camping thing and everything, but it was all about flying and aerospace. Competed in a couple of aerospace design competitions in high school. Won a couple of first places for uh, spaceship design. And then that led to going to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in aerospace engineering and then a master's in aerospace, uh, well, bachelor's in aeronautical, master's in aerospace engineering from San Diego. But that led to working at General Dynamics, Convair. And yeah. so I started working at GD Convair, and I always wanted to be in the conceptual design group, right? The guys who, I, I like to call them artist engineers, because my mom mm-hmm. was an artist as well as a pilot, and I wanted to do the conceptual design, not just the, the detailed design. So they put me in a group called Mass Properties, mm-hmm. which I thought was like being damned to hell. I was a weights guy and all my friends went into things like stress analysis and aerodynamics yeah. and all that stuff. And I was in the weights group, which which I thought, oh my gosh, 
I weigh things. Yeah. And what I didn't realize was that my bosses had actually done me a great favor, right? You never know that you've been done a great favor until afterwards. And the reason they put me in the weights group is because weight is absolutely critical to everything that happens in the aircraft design, right? Right. Weight is important. You're trying for the less weight. But that what it means is you get to see all the systems, yeah, everything, and how they all integrate and work and play together to get the minimum weight. And from that, then I learned all kinds of really cool things about how you design aircraft, what actually affects the performance of the aircraft. And then after a while, I got, like I said, I got my master's. And with that, then I became the youngest pre-designer uh, at Convair, you know, to actually design missiles and aircraft and spacecraft. So you didn't intend to be a rocket scientist. Now now we're splitting hairs. Because <laughs> even, even, though, even though there were these, I like to have these little buttons that say, well, yes, I am a rocket scientist. I'm actually an engineer. Yeah, uh, which is a lot different than 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 right, scientists. I see what you mean because technically, rocket scientists would be in propulsion, correct? Actually, what happens is a rocket scientist would actually look at the science or research behind. So, let's taking your propulsion thing, they would be researching the right kind of propellant, mm-hmm. you know, the fuel and oxidizer, right? Or or researching oh, they're like architects. They don't yeah. actually build shit. Right. And engineers actually take all that knowledge, right? Oh, that's good. And they say, now we're going to take all this really cool knowledge and we're actually going to build something. Yeah. Well, you said something that stuck out to me and I want to come back to it. Artist, engineer, you're interested in conceptual design. Talk to me about the differentiation of those two and how how maybe that played a role in you being a part of not just the first, this first stealth cruise missile, but also the part of presenting what many in my generation and certainly in your generation would recognize as uh, one of the most critical pieces of thermonuclear weaponry um, and, um, and also missile aircraft in right. our, in our U S armed forces. Like talk to me about the sort of that, that navigating that space as uh, what you call the artist engineer. So when you're trying to come up with something brand new, you have to put away all the constraints that define the previous generation's design. So there's a series, you know, of of engineering that works and optimizes with inside the box. You know, you're given a box and that box is usually defined by physics and by economics, putting aside the customer desire and stuff. But, you know, when you when you said this is what we're going to design and there are people that are really, really good at operating inside that box. You know, they know structural design, they know aerodynamics, and it's all based on what has gone before. But if you're trying to design something absolutely brand new, you have to put aside those walls and start to extrapolate the possible. And you'll have to start to look at, well, what if? What if we could do this? And maybe the technology doesn't exist at the time, but by imagining what it could be, you can help then define where the research needs to go to make that happen. Well, in our world today, the people that explore those boundaries are artists because they're given that freedom to imagine what could be, what what would things look like? How would they behave? And so 
that's why you end up with this small group of people within the engineering community, which are conceptual designers, pre-designers, I call them artist engineers, because what they're trying to do is envision what could be. And then that helps guide what the scientists that we talked about a couple of minutes ago, they should be looking at in terms of research, developing the new materials, the new algorithms, you know, the new configurations. And then what we do as the artist engineer is we then integrate all those technologies, all that research into a solution, whether it's a car, an airplane, and what we'll talk about later is a new battery. What was the catalyst that kind of sparked the desire to move on from what seems like a childhood dream for many, right? Get to work at General Dynamics. You're working at one of the, like you're building some of the most important stuff, even though it, you know, has different, um, there are different means to different ends. What was that first catalyst that said, mm, maybe I'm not going to stay in this role anymore? Uh, there were two initiating events. One was frankly, the realization that what I was doing was developing, you know, a thermonuclear weapon delivery system. And I'm proud of that. Uh, and I'm proud that, that it did its role. I mean, there, yeah. was a, there was a ceremony at General Dynamics in San Diego where the Air Force accepted the, the last production version of the mm -hmm. AGM-129. I had moved on, but I was invited to the uh, ceremony as you know, one of the designers of the missile. And the colonel that accepted it said, the role that this missile played in helping, you know, end the Cold War, bring yeah. down the Soviet Union, had more than I'm allowed to tell you, had more of a role than I'm allowed to tell you. So, you know, like I said, we're very proud of that. But the fact is, I was using my engineering talent to build kind of this defensive thing mm -hmm. that, you know, could essentially, you know, wipe out a city in, in, yeah. uh, in a few milliseconds. And I thought I, I would really like to contribute using my engineering skills a little bit more in the positive sense. So uh, I left General Dynamics to go work for Nissan Yeah, and felt that I could use some of those aerospace engineering talents for both efficient design, right? Lightweight structures, aerodynamic shapes and so on, and, and bring that toward helping you know, people move uh, more efficiently. I love that. Use that, the talents to bring more efficiency to mobility. Yeah. Exactly. So mm -hmm. while at Nissan, I was working at the Nissan Design NDI, Nissan Design International, mm -hmm. which is their advanced design facility in La Jolla, California, and got assigned to work on something for the Tokyo Motor Show, which was an eco car. Mm -hmm. And at the time, it wasn't really considered you know, that electric vehicles would be the right way to go. But what yeah. intrigued me was the fact that Nissan was interested in something that could be efficient in terms of mileage, design, material usage, carrying the kind of people, you know, efficiently in an urban environment. And that's what kind of started me thinking about, wow, this is everything that we like in aerospace engineering about yeah. efficient design could be applied in, in automotive. Before I forget, you had mentioned there were two initiating events. The first was realization that he, that you were developing a oh. nuclear delivery <laughs> weapon system. What was the second? <laughs> uh, oh, and this is going to go out live. <laughs> uh, work, working, working with the United States government at the time, the bureaucracy was almost too much to handle. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, you know, for an artist engineer who wants to get things done, working with the the U.S. government and and all the things that they wanted just became almost 
constraining. And I just said, I, I can't take that. <laughs> I can't take come, this anymore. I'm going to come back to that in a minute then. So we're, we're at Nissan. You are an artist engineer working on conceptual eco cars, the latter part of the 80s, early part of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Did, did they know what to do with, I'll say, people like you, someone with your talents? Uh, no. <laughs> How'd that that work? Well, because at the time, at the time, you know, the automotive industry was kind of in uh, the way they typically did it was into kind of two parts. Mm -hmm. And there were designers who were responsible kind of like for the shape of the car. Mm -hmm. And there's engineers who are responsible for making sure that, you know, the constraints necessary to make sure that it's real are are defined. And they didn't mix the two. So there were there were either designers or there were engineers. Anyway, what I was more used to was kind of this, this fusion between the two yeah. rather than mm. the separation between the two. Uh, interestingly, what happened is that a sister Nissan organization just north of La Jolla in Vista, California, mm. which was called MPTI, Nissan Performance Technology, they were Nissan's racing arm in the United States. They sent some parts down to the NDI to be measured because they wanted to check the shape of these parts compared, you know, the actual parts compared to engineering contour. Mm-hmm. And so I, I jumped on the chance because they were race car parts and they were very yeah. cool. So I started talking to the guys from MPTI and they happened to mention and they said, we're going to be designing a car to race at Le Mans. We've won the contract from Nissan corporate Sweet. and we're looking for a program manager. And I said, well, I know how to do this. <laughs> Nice. A race car is simply, you know, it's a fighter aircraft on four wheels. And I've managed programs at GD. So I applied to MPTI to run their program to design and build the car to race at Le Mans. What was special about the car design? The first thing is, A, it has to follow, you know, certain rules set up by the FIA, Federation mm-hmm. International Automobile. The 24 Hours of Le Mans, like Sebring and stuff, is very punishing on a car. Right? Yeah. In other words, to, to have a car perform for 24 hours at peak performance throughout that whole. And, and effectively, by the way, that car, I mean, it is combat, right? You've got all these cars on the, on, the, on the racetrack. There's weather. There's things that are on the road. There's the other cars, you know, trying to get ahead of you. So that's kind of the environment that it works in. But what we were looking at is you had to take a car carrying, you know, a driver with uh, an engine that put out about 640 horsepower going at 14,400 RPM. Mm -hmm. And you were max weight, uh, couldn't be more than 1,650 pounds. This is a rule by Le Mans? Yeah, Yeah. at the time. Think of it as like- And you're a weights guy. And and I'm a mass properties guy and an aerospace engineer. Uh, So yes, we built an all composite car. Whoa, was it the first in the world? It wasn't the first in the world because many race cars use composite materials. Yeah. But one of the things that it did have besides uh, our aerodynamicist, Yoshi, and head of aerodynamics, which was Andy Galloway, did a brilliant job you know, in the design working with our chief engineer, Trevor Harris. But the one thing that we did do, which was a little bit innovative, was we had an all-composite roll cage. Oh, wow. And, and by the way, one of the reasons to do that, other than the fact that it was safer for the driver, is that the typical roll cage is out of steel. Mm-hmm. And by making it out of composite, it could be one third the weight, which lowers the center of gravity, which makes right. the car more stable. Wow. 
but it is composite. So we had to go through some some really interesting testing. Yeah. Uh, a quick story about the testing is our driver comes from a long line of uh, race car drivers. He was he was in the office, and I was explaining to him what we were going to do with this roll cage. And of course, the typical reaction to an all composite roll cage is it's plastic. Right. And it's of course it's not plastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it's very tailorable in terms of its strength and stiffness. So I was explaining this to him, and he said, "Okay, Burs, I'll tell you what. Uh, before I get in that car, here's what I want you to do: is so I want you to take the cockpit, you know, the cockpit structure with the roll cage on it, and I want you to put it in the back of a truck. We'll take it out to the racetrack. We'll drive at like 80, 90 miles an hour, and then we'll shove, we'll shove it out the back of the truck. Let it roll and let it roll. And I said, okay. And then he says, and I want you to sit in it. Whoa. And I went, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he looked at me and he said, you positive? I said, absolutely. I trust the engineering. And he went, all right, good enough for me. <laughs> and you didn't have to do it. I didn't have to do it. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, man. Sometimes folks ask, you know, why I don't do shorter 30 minute interviews. Uh, you miss stuff like this. This is actually, I feel like an investor would want to know this story because they want to know how you think, right? I love this. I love this stuff. Well, you know, I want to come back to this idea that working for the U.S. government and bureaucracy is just too much to handle because uh, as I think about the timeline of like the work that you did, you spent another decade plus at a company whose main client was yet again, the U.S. government. Am I right? So if you're talking about NZINC, uh, well, talking I'm talking about, about CSC. Oh, CSC. I spent, yes. So it turns out that our our clients were commercial clients and their customer was the U.S. government or mm. the British Ministry of Defense. Exactly. But it all, it all still does filter down. In other words, you know, Lockheed Martin uh, has to respond to the requirements of the U.S. government. So yeah. it, it essentially has to emulate yeah. the U.S. government. Gotcha. Remind me, I know there's a, there's a story here of how you, because um, like Computer Science Corporation, CSC, you are effectively teaching governments how to use computers. That's like way oversimplification. But. Yeah. What CSC did was what was called IT outsourcing, right? So what Computer Science Corporation would do is come to a corporation and say, hey, look, uh, your core competency is designing missiles and aircraft. It's not running right. computers, right? Yeah. So you outsource all your computers to us, we'll manage them and so on. We'll do that, you know, for you. And that way that'll free up money and you can focus your attention. Mm -hmm. But what you also want to do is give value add to your customer. So you want to go to, at the time, Lockheed Martin and say, you know, you need to know how to effectively use your computers. And that's not just the hardware, but the software. So I was assigned when I was working for Computer Sciences Corporation with Lockheed Martin was to help them put together what they called the VPDI, Virtual Product Development Initiative, which was their advanced design program to design the Joint Strike Fighter F-35 in a virtual environment. Wow. That, that was kind of one of their competitive differentiators to the other companies that they were competing with. Wow. So that was my job was because of my knowledge of aircraft design, was to help design the architecture of how you would design the fighter aircraft in a virtual environment. Mm. What career path did you not go down that you, that you thought you might? Wow. Other, other, than, other than the fact that, like I said, I wanted to be a pilot or, or an astronaut. 
Mm. I'll tell you the one that I that I really thought uh, was would be a lot of fun is to work in movies. Oh yeah, well, on in the, fact, like in front of the camera, behind the camera. What was the? Oh what about oh, the uh, I wanted to do uh, like uh, either screenwriting or or visual effects or, mm. or or directing. You know, directing movies. I thought yeah. that would be cool. In fact, that's how I met one of my best friends, Mitch Suskin, who's like one of Hollywood's best visual effects guys. Wow. Um, because of my my interest in that, so I actually took screenwriting classes, <laughs> <You know what? laughs> and it it turns out I'm really terrible. No. <laughs> I'm just a terrible screenwriter. Well, I noticed that one of the um, pit stops for you on the way to Zinc was this business uh, that you founded called Hypergolic Studio. So I have to imagine that was in some way you trying yes. it on and saying, "Did I make a mistake here? Not actually <laughs> following that following that pathway." Yeah. Well, Michael, tell me about your first foray into your experience with. Uh, clean energy and um, how you decided that's where you were going to really turn the focus of your career. So that has to be prefaced okay. with an incident that I had while in England okay. working for Computer Sciences Corporation. And we were visiting military aircraft division with the guys who were designing the airplane that's sitting behind me up there called the Eurofighter. British Aerospace was working on the Eurofighter. So we were having a dinner with the British Aerospace team. And I was sitting across from the head of uh, mechanical engineering. And he was asking me, so I understand you're an aerospace engineer. I said, yeah, I understand you've designed things, you know, like stealth cruise missiles and fighter aircraft and so on. And I said, yeah, and, and designed them, built them, you know, put them into service. He says, so now you're working for a computer sciences corporation doing IT consulting, if you will. And I said, yeah. He goes, geez, what a waste. Wow. <laughs> Take it easy, buddy. <laughs> yeah. That one, that would kind of hit, you know, that would, dude, that would, and, and I thought about that for a long time and I came to the conclusion he was right, you know, sitting behind a desk and, and consulting with people about how to do things better and stuff versus actually sitting at the computer or the drafting table, whatever it is, and designing and building and testing and delivering uh, that's what I really, really missed. Yeah. So I took early retirement from uh, Computer Sciences Corporation. Wow. And what I wanted to do, uh, please don't laugh, uh, we wanted to design uh, electric cars. Okay. And so I felt that I could combine my aerospace, automotive, and computer skills and integrate all those together into a really cool electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. Because we felt that electric vehicles needed elements of each one of those disciplines, right? They were yeah. going to be essentially computers on four wheels. They needed yeah. to have the lightweight efficiency of uh, aerospace vehicles. Yeah. But they also needed to have both the safety, uh, stability, you know, um, suspension system, kind of drivetrain stuff. And that that an actual electric vehicle should not be just an internal combustion engine with a new propulsion system, yeah. right? You had to think about it differently, mm -hmm. which was, by the way, a great theoretical approach, but just a terrible business approach. Yeah. For context, folks who aren't scrolling through your LinkedIn right now wouldn't know. The time frame is 2008. Who else was doing this in 2008? There was Aptera, mm -hmm. you know, which was looking yeah, at the their kind of composite three-wheeled vehicle. Yeah. Only took them about 10 years to get it in the market. Right. Tesla uh, had just released, you know, um, their Lotus version, right? The yep. Roadster. Mm -hmm. A few years before GM, you know, had, had done their, 
the electric car. The who killed the electric car version. So there weren't a whole bunch of electric cars mm-hmm. or full electric cars mm-hmm. that were out there. And I was really trying to look at them from first principles, so to speak, Yeah. which in hindsight was really a terrible way to go. Oh, really? Because to try and build a prototype of what we envisioned would have been way too expensive. I think the right way to do it was the way the original Tesla founders did, which was to take an existing vehicle yeah. and modify it, right? And what I we were, I was, if I, I was looking chance, at it way too much as an engineer, right? If I ever get a chance to interview Martin, and uh, I have a couple of folks who've promised to make intros because he's got, a, I think, highs on there. They've got a really cool product now. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to do it, take another stab at it. It's one of the questions I have. A lot of folks have different questions for Tesla. My question is, why the Lotus one? Like, why that chassis? This <laughs> is like, it's a. You may have the answer, but it is one of those like design questions, right? You go, you go wow, like this is really hard not to crack. First, you're going to go for a premium market. I can, I can probably fabricate all the things I think might have played into it, but I'm not an engineer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well on, a, on a on a separate conversation, yeah, we could we could kind of talk. I thought it was it was a brilliant approach, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because the Lotus chassis, you know, is kind of a fiberglass uh, composite. So it's lightweight and that uh, they build just a few, you know, I mean, a few hundred of these cars per year. Right. Mm -hmm. So the engineering team at Lotus is willing to adapt the chassis. I mean, you couldn't go you couldn't go to General Motors and say, you know, I really love that Corvette. And and you've got a brilliant, you know, lightweight exoskeleton, if you will. And and you've got a really nice frame. How, how about if we go modify it? You know, right. General Motors would kind of go like, "Look, we're already working on EV one, or we've already done that." No, right. But Lotus, you know, had I think the right vehicle and the right engineering approach and manufacturing that they could go actually modify those. And it speaks to finding the right partner, exactly. Which which is something that every entrepreneur in the path to product market fit has to encounter. You know, one of the things that I noticed when I was kind of getting to know your story is you're potentially familiar with other similar stories. I'll name two that listeners would recognize and might not know, might not immediately know the backstory of. So Next Tracker was spun out of effectively like a, a, well, not, I won't like Solaria was definitely not a failed product. It was taking far longer than anybody thought to get Solaria's product to market. And they had many, many pivots before they have what is now a knock a home run product that they're doing fantastic with, but they had to spin Dan sugar, rightly spun next tracker out as a product category because he looked at the guts and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This thing that you're doing is really cool. Right. Another one, most people probably don't know this, but the Selectria inverter is they're based in Boston. The, the guys that founded Selectria had created the inverter as an electric car product. It was meant to be used in electric car propulsion systems and if I'm not mistaken, I could be way off here, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. It was, they originally were trying to make a, a, a kit, like an electric car kit. And they were just, you know, 15 years too early and they, or maybe 20, but they realized that their electric conversion device was, was, was highly useful. And thus Selectria was born, which now Yaskawa, for those who haven't been in the industry long enough, is basically what, what, you know, they bought this Selectria brand. And it sounds like that's a bit of how your current startup evolved. That's correct. Okay. No, you're, you're absolutely right along the right path. You know, we, we were, we, the, the, the original team were using kind of the aerospace automotive uh, systems approach, right? Mm-hmm. I talked about how, you know, aerospace engineering and me in particular, like to look at kind of the system. 
So we were doing kind of a system evaluation of what, you know, an electric car should be. You know, we came to the conclusion, number one, here are the attributes. But number two is we don't have the money, you know, Mm. to be able to try and create what that vision was. But in that search for, you know, both the design of it, uh, you know, how you're going to build it and the propulsion system at the core, of course, is the battery. And we took a look at that and we had we had started talking with uh, Dr. Bruce Dunn at the California Nanosystems Institute, UCLA. And he was the one who came along and said, you know, there everybody's looking at this lithium battery and we think that there is a, an alternative to that. And it's uh, zinc, but zinc in a three-dimensional form, different than anybody else has been looking at zinc. Uh, that led us to say, huh, um, this could be, you know, pretty, pretty interesting from a whole different, a whole bunch of different aspects, right? Yeah. But uh, Dr. Dunn's approach was academically interesting, mm-hmm. but not commercially viable. But that's okay, because what he was showing is that the three-dimensional structure could actually provide zinc attributes. And, he, and that's where he introduced us to Dr. Deborah Rollinson at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory and her team. She was actually his partner. And what they were doing was they were working on a battery for the Navy with mm-hmm. money funded from the Office of Naval Research to make a safer battery, yeah. believe it or not, that could be used in a battlefield situation. And yeah. it was a zinc air battery, but it was a disposable. It wasn't a rechargeable. Right. But it, it had certain attributes. Well, when we looked at what Dr. Dunn and team were looking at, which think of it as kind of the the academic reason for a three-dimensional structure, mm-hmm. Deborah and her team were actually looking at uh, sponge structures. So whereas Dr. Dunn was looking at essentially something that looked like a hairbrush, mm-hmm. you know, high aspect ratio rods, Dr. Rollinson was looking at the other side, the cathode side, at a sponge structure. And, and so when we were started talking with Dr. Rollinson, we had both come to the same conclusion that maybe a sponge zinc structure and she said, you know, kind of funny that you're saying that we actually came to that conclusion and we've made some prototypes. And that's mm. how we got involved with the uh, U.S. Naval Research Laboratory. Mm. But that's but you're absolutely right. We pivoted. We, you know, we took a look at this and said, here's electric cars. These are really cool. But if you take a look at the energy storage, right, not only could it be used for cars, but it could be used for a whole bunch of other applications, particularly, you know, in the renewable energy space. And that kind of led us in the path of defining and designing the battery. Now, before I get into the design of the battery, I want to ask, as an entrepreneur, as someone who early retired from CSC to pursue this dream of building an electric car, what was what was it like to decide that now is the moment, this is the idea to pivot towards? Because I feel like we, we run into this all the time as entrepreneurs. Seth Godin says, you got to know when to stop digging. Most entrepreneurs don't know when to stop digging. That's why most businesses don't last more than three years because they dig too deep, right? Talk, can you talk to me a bit about that, that point where you realized, and I imagine like from an engineering perspective, you were able to sort of think about calculating the risk, but how did you make that choice to pivot? To, to pivot from trying to do a car to trying to do a battery. Yeah. Yeah. It came in several, several directions, like mm-hmm. a lot of things do, right? The first was when you put together your business plan and you build what you think it's going to cost you know, to, to achieve it. You do this for so long. I'm going to use your term when to stop digging. What happens is 
you put together all these wonderful charts, you do this analysis, and you start to believe your own bullshit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's where some really good external input comes in. And that for us came from VCs. I know sometimes they get kind of a bad rap, but when you go pitch to a VC and they look at you and they go, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Good for somebody's money, but not mine. Right. And the other was we had a really good set of senior advisors. And one of them was a guy by the name of Arv Muller. And Arv is a legend in the automotive business. Arv was head of GM powertrain. Mm. He was the godfather of the EV1. If you like Corvettes. Yes. You know, it's his team that does the Corvette engine. Uh, sadly, Arv passed away uh, several several years ago. But mm. his advice in terms of, you know, what it takes to build a car company mm-hmm. and the uh, resources, both in terms of people and money, I think uh, as an engineer, you know, I've, I had to sit down and, and face that reality and yeah. say, I'm getting, I'm getting this feedback from a bunch of people and I bet, and these are really smart people. Yeah. And I know that sometimes entrepreneurs like to say, uh, they kind of twist Steve Jobs comment, you know, about, Mm. um, or Henry Ford's comment, right? If I had asked people what they want, they would have said a faster horse. Right. Uh, Every entrepreneur gets into that thing where I said, where you start to believe that they just don't understand what I'm trying to do here. Mm. Uh, But at some point you really do have to listen to what the people who have money and the people who are in the business have to say. And we decided at that point, what makes the most sense is in trying to take on the full automotive world. What we'll do is we'll provide the, um, the power plant. So by the way, in kind of a parallel, right? It's kind of like this guy who has glasses on said, you know, I can't actually design or I can't be a pilot or an astronaut, but I can design them. Yeah. The same kind of thought is, well, if I can't actually build the whole car, I will provide the power plant that enables right. cars, solar, wind, hmm. uh, UPS systems, everything that's necessary to move us toward a green economy will provide you know, that foundational element, which is the energy storage piece. It's for those of us in the industry, common knowledge at this point, we're in what Abby Hopper and Sia have said is the solar plus decade. Solar at this point, renewables generally can only scale as coupled with a firm power source, something that can redeploy that power uh, in a consistent rather than intermittent availability. What are you doing differently in the storage space? This is what we like to believe. This is okay. So I'm going to air quotes here. This is, yes. this is Michael's, Michael's story. <laughs> this is the bullshit that we have to believe or we have to throw apart. I'm, we're you're in the process of, uh, of having validation in the marketplace now. So I'm going to say right. that we're going to believe it. So why don't you go for it? So what, what, our, our foundation part is that we believe that that the energy storage mechanism mm-hmm. should reflect the ethos of the market we're trying to support. Mm-hmm. So what we mean by that is if you're going to build a battery to support green technology, then every aspect of that product, from the way its materials are extracted, to the way you manufacture it, to the way you use it, and to the way you recycle it and reuse it, should fit that same ethos. Yeah. And so some of the, you know, the technologies that are competitors, particularly around the lithium ion space, mm-hmm. uh, we've, we've reached the point where we love the technology 
In other words, you know, what it can do for us, but we're ignoring the fact that what do you do when you can't use it anymore? So from the beginning of the extraction of materials, the way in which you make the battery and the way in which you dispose of the battery at end of life, I don't think that full life cycle uh, has been completely uh, instantiated. Yeah, you know, for the lithium. I mean, we've we've leapt onto the lithium ion bandwagon, and we're we're writing that story, but we're going to run into a wall here in a few years. Mm. And so we, pardon, that, that's because of the what? Why are we going to run into a wall? And you say in a few years, what is the? So there's the supply chain itself of okay. where we get the materials, how much of materials are needed for to meet the demand. There's yeah. the there's the additional subsystems required just to keep those batteries in operation and safe, which yeah. means that more, you know they're, they're, from a systems point of view, you need more and more things mm-hmm. to surround it. Right. And that at the end of life, what you know, what do you do with the battery? Now I know that there's a lot of people that are working on how to make it cost effective to recycle the battery, right. but that's going to take a lot of research to take that black mass and make sure that the end result doesn't use up as much energy as it took to extract it, manufacture it, right? To put it back into play. Yeah, we talk about the embodied energy, even of solar panels, right? We talk about it's less than two years now, the embodied Mm -hmm. energy, the the energy used or or required to create it. But from a footprint perspective, we still don't talk about the energy required to restore it full circle to its original component or to put it into a new product, the actual, you know, closed loop cycle that we live in called Mm -hmm. the earth. Okay, so back to Dr. Rowlandson and the battery for the Navy that was safer for the battlefield. They were looking at disposable zinc air batteries, and you and Dr. Rowlandson had a conversation around sponge structures. What was your conclusion that, you know, you've spent the last decade commercializing and and working on in the lab and now in the field? What was your conclusion as an alternative to the prevailing thought that lithium ion and other tor- sorts of rare earth metals were going to be the, the savior instead of the lead acid that had been around for a hundred years. The thing is, frankly, there was the challenge mm-hmm. against going up against what we'd like to call the lithium ion mafia. Yeah. Right. In other words, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we could come up with something that was different Yeah. just because it was an engineering challenge. But the other part was looking at it from a systems point of view, the, ma- the materials were so simple mm-hmm. that if that if everyone else was taking a look at trying to take how do I put this lithium ion batteries as sophisticated as they are really are in structure very conventional right mm-hmm. it's a bunch of materials with an anode and a cathode and you put in a bunch of exotic materials and by the way this is no way disparaging Dr. Goodenough and and their Nobel Prize and everything like that, because mm-hmm. it was absolutely revolutionary, right? But what they were looking at was taking a conventional structure and using exotic materials, you know, to make a good energy storage device. And what intrigued me was Dr. Rowlandson's approach was to take a conventional material and mm-hmm. put it into an unconventional shape, which was this three-dimensional sponge structure. And at the time, like I said, it was really great as a disposable, as a primary battery. Yeah. And then we got feedback that no one really cares about a disposable battery, Uh right? Yeah. If it can be rechargeable. So back to the drawing board, Dr. Rollinson's team went back and figured out how to actually fabricate an interconnected sponge 
that could be rechargeable. And we can explain kind of how that works here in a second. But it was that challenge of how can you make an energy storage device, which was elegant in its solution, rather than continuously adding new and different types of materials to try and get uh, an increase in specific energy or energy density, whatever. There just seemed to be a lot of research into, into adding more and more sophisticated chemicals to try and increase the performance, whereas this one was really simple and elegant. Mm-hmm. And one thing that engineers like are things that are really simple and elegant. Totally. Because if you can get to that point, then everything ripples from that, right? The manufacturing of it, the materials usage, the supply chain, yeah. how it's used, the systems that surround it, and it's disposable, it's disposal or reuse, which is mm-hmm. what we want to do. When I first spoke to John, he said in John's particular way, what if I could take the lead acid battery out of your car and make it rechargeable perpetually? And I said, um, I wouldn't need all these fancy other technologies that we're currently deploying in mass in the field to back up storage because I could just recharge all the daggone batteries sitting around that nobody knows what to do with. How does the simplicity of the work that you did with Dr. Rawlinson get to something that we would, from an entrepreneur perspective, call product market fit? Talk to me about, while I recognize we might have 10 or 20 minutes to say what took a decade, walk me through that product market fit search where you as an entrepreneur who has left now your startup, which was your, your retirement project, to, to pivot into this new thing. Uh, it's turned into a, a 12-year journey to commercialize a product. What did, the, what did that process of product market fit look like? The, the first thing you have to do is, is take a look at the capability of the technology, mm-hmm. right? Zinc and aqueous-based systems, because that's what zinc is. You know, you couple it with an aqueous electrolyte, mm-hmm. defines the capability of the battery. In other words, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't make it do what chemistry and physics mm-hmm. constrain you to do. Yeah. So what you have to do is is take a look at the capability of that technology and then say, all right, does it provide a benefit for certain markets? So you end up you end up having to kind of take a look at, well, A, what are what are energy storage, what are batteries used for? What are they used for today? What are some of their uh, existing capabilities and what are some of their deficiencies? Mm-hmm. And do we actually check off the box? in each one of those categories. We're kind of guided though, interestingly enough, by what the Navy was interested in. Mm-hmm. Because it turns out that, you know, kind of what the Navy's interested in, the commercial world is also interested in, but on a much broader scale. And the first thing that the Navy was interested in was safety. You know, if you're gonna put uh, energy storage aboard a ship or submarine or aircraft, uh, the number one thing is the crew. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want anything to happen that puts the crew in danger. Yeah. And the second thing is, because the Navy is who the Navy is, they want something that's high performance. So you need to balance, you know, the safety requirements with the high performance requirements. And high performance, by the way, has several attributes. Mm -hmm. So what the Navy was interested in translates into what the commercial world is interested in, Mm. which, believe it or not, is safety and high performance and cost. Right. You know, those, those three, those three legs of the stool. Yeah. Here's the other thing though, that interested and why, you know, you may want to ask this, but what interested us about the zinc anode in and of itself, when you said, 
the product fit thing, what, mm-hmm. what makes it simple. Once again, as a systems engineer, as a conceptual engineer, the part that was relevatory to us is if you could solve the zinc anode problem as a high-performance rechargeable anode, you could then couple it with different cathode materials for different applications. Therefore, you didn't have a single point design, you had a platform design. So that's, that's what made this journey worthwhile. In other words, I wasn't just solving, or the team in the Navy, you know, Dr. Rollinson wasn't just solving a single point solution. Mm-hmm. It was essentially one that could be applied across a wide range of markets. Now, we are going to start, you know, with, with a series of beachhead, both cathode pairings as well as products. But the fact is, that's just the stair step mm-hmm. to a broad family of batteries. I have a, a, a lot of questions. I'm not a, a technologist or engineer or scientist. I'm going to have to satisfy my need to know with, you know, matching my potential, not the lack of ability to understand. But I want to come back to this idea of simplicity. When you last week at Invest met with potential investors, what is your elevator pitch of what NZINC is or does? What we tell them is two things. The technology allows you to have a battery with the energy of lithium ion, Mm -hmm. but a cost more like lead acid, but is safer than either. And because of that technology, we can be a low-cost drop-in replacement in an existing lead-acid or nickel-metal hydride plant that will turn it from making legacy batteries into advanced technology batteries. Okay. I want to drill down on the advanced technology piece. How does it make legacy batteries advanced technology? So right now, lead-acid batteries have been around for 150 years. Mm Mm-hmm. They've pretty much plateaued in terms of their performance, pretty much plateaued in terms of cost. They, they have a small growth rate, but let's take lead-acid batteries used by most people in the world. It is the most populous battery in the world. Mm. Uh, everybody talks about lithium-ion batteries as the 800-pound gorilla in the room. What people don't realize is the 700-pound gorilla in the room is lead-acid batteries. Yeah, they're everywhere in the world. They're used on almost every kind of you know application you can think of in terms of you know energy storage, whether it's mobile applications you know in your car today, or even electric cars have lead acid batteries in them uh, to right. you know energy storage for you know solar uh, lift trucks, data yeah. centers, and so on. Mm-hmm. Right? UPS is a huge lead acid industry. It's a huge, huge business. Yeah, but those batteries are coming under threat from other types of chemistries, particularly things like lithium iron phosphate. Right. Now, there are some disadvantages to it, but uh, to lithium iron phosphate, which we can kind of talk about a little bit. But in general, there's this vast infrastructure of, of factories around the world because nobody ships lead acid batteries, right? They're just, they're heavy. Yeah. Right. So you tend to build them close to where your markets are. Mm. So almost every country, you know, has some kind of domestic lead acid battery manufacturing, mm-hmm. right? If you can take those existing lead acid factories and simply replace the lead plates, which have done really good duty for the last 150 years, but have reached essentially, you know, their technological capacity mm-hmm. and replace those 
with something just as simple, a nickel plate and a zinc plate, and you get three times the energy and three times the cycle life, but you keep all your existing equipment, you're using essentially advanced technology to increase you know, your, your product's capability and your market reach. Got it. Now I understand what you mean by platform. Yeah. Okay. Well, by and- platform, by the way, by platform, what it means is I can couple, we're starting off with nickel because nickel's well characterized. Mm-hmm. So you get a nickel zinc battery. Lots of people are trying to make nickel zinc batteries or are making nickel zinc batteries, but nothing that compares in terms of cycle life and specific energy as this sponge structure. Yeah. But I can also then couple it with manganese or with silver or where we actually got started. If you recall, the Navy was looking at zinc air batteries, Mm -hmm. but they weren't rechargeable. What we'd really be interested in is the rechargeable version of that. And now as an aerospace engineer, that zinc air battery is really, really cool. And we can talk about why that's really cool if you wish. Well, before we do that, and I do, what the it is when you say we can couple it with manganese is the sponge structure. That's the, it is the sponge anode, the, the zinc it. sponge anode. Got it. Okay. Tell me about the zinc air and why it's cool. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how we got into this was, like I said, uh, you know, the, the Navy was working on this zinc air battery and zinc air batteries, metal air batteries have tremendous specific energies. The one thing about the zinc sponge, and we, we actually, we actually made one, uh, I'll say by mistake. We're, we make them flat at the moment because they're going to go into a pouch cell. But we were experimenting with, uh, with different ways to make the sponge. And the guys came to my office and said, oh, it didn't work so well. And I said, what's the matter? And they, they showed it and, and it was all dished. <laughs> mm. You know, it, it looked like a contact lens. And I went, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and they went, what? Yeah, but it but it's it's not flat. And I said, I know it's not flat, and that's awesome. And they said, Why? I said, You're talking to an aerospace engineer. What if we could make batteries that are curved? And they yeah. went, like for what? And I said, Well, you could put them in the fuselage or or the wing, right? Yeah. The battery fits no, the battery no can be curved. And that's what a that's what a sponge structure can do. That's so cool. Before we go too far, uh, at the risk of sounding very pedestrian, can you help those who are not Engineers understand what specific energy means? Certainly. So there's a couple of metrics that people like to use when evaluating batteries. Uh, One of them is specific energy is the watt hours per weight, watt hours per kilogram. And the other, of course, is volume, which is watt hours per liter. Mm -hmm. Lead acid batteries, our tried and true wonderful friends we've had for a while, have a specific energy of around 30 to 40 watt hours per kilogram. At the other end of the scale are the nickel cobalt aluminum batteries used by Tesla, which have a specific energy of around 260 to 280 mm-hmm. watt hours per kilogram. Tremendous, right? It's about, what, five to eight right. times yeah. the energy. So, so like rare earth metal type, like, like cobalt, five to 10 times the energy density right. or specific energy. Okay. Exactly. Now, by the way, what I hear this kind of gets into why we think the zinc battery is so cool. Yeah, those those are cell numbers. You know, when you when you go to uh, Walmart, you know, to get your your double A, we always call them double A batteries, right? Yep. That's actually a cell, right? Right. the The thing that's in your car is a battery, which is made up of six cells, right? Right. 
when you talk about the specific energies that I just gave of 260 to 280 watt hours per kilogram, that's at the cell level. Right. But to make those things work safely, the lithium ion cells in a car, you have to add a bunch of additional systems. So you have to add an active cooling system to keep all those weight. cells cool. Pardon? You have to add a lot of weight. Yeah. You have to, to add a very specific. sophisticated battery management system because right. you have to start measuring all those little blocks to make sure that they're not overheating or they're not overcharging. I get the and then you have to add extra the, equipment isn't factored into the specific energy exactly. density per 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 weight exactly. calculation. <laughs> so now what you have to do for those people who are, you know, like car people, right? Yeah. When I used to work at Nissan, you know, we had that really cool uh, racing car engine right. and we would put it on the dyno and it was 640 horsepower on the dyno- dynamometer. Then yeah. you'd put it in the car and you had to subtract all the horsepower loss due to what? The clutch, Friction. the transaxle, everything that went to the wheels. And so the installed horsepower was typically much less. Yeah. And the same thing happens with batteries, right? By the time you take those cells and you package them into their little modules and into their bricks and into their battery pack, and then you add thermal management and a battery management system and armor, you end up taking that effective or installed specific energy from around 260 down to around 130 to 150. Wow. Okay. Now and we don't need somewhere. those. Hey, you know, it's becoming commonplace to hear that energy storage is the key to deploying renewables at scale. But if you've tried to put storage on a commercial solar project ever, then you realize it's easier said than done until now. Look, I've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings as a solar project developer in my 15 years in the industry, but Yada Energy's storage product just scratches that developer itch of fit, function, and ease to install. Yada's PV-coupled ecosystem of solar plus storage solutions integrates seamlessly right behind the solar panel. In fact, it elegantly replaces the need for a ballast as it nests right into the racking on a flat roof install. Even better, Yada's integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be employed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means that Yada is finally helping business owners and solar installers alike make a serious dent in the commercial sector's massive carbon emissions. Yada Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by maximizing solar plus storage without taking up additional valuable commercial real estate for your customers. To find out how Yada Energy can bring storage to your CNI rooftop project, visit mysuncast.com forward slash Yada. That's Y-O-T-T-A. Yada Energy, an elegant and revolutionary approach to solar plus storage. Are you in the Massachusetts solar market? Well, if you are, I have an exclusive partnership opportunity I'd like to talk with you about related to the Massachusetts Smart Energy Program. Please feel free to email me, nico at mysuncast.com, if the following applies. We're looking for folks with system sizes between 5 kilowatts and 500 kilowatts in the Eversource and National Grid service areas. We can help convert disqualified leads and turn them into revenue. We're looking for turnkey EPC services and success fees can be paid at agreed upon milestones. We'll help you convert unqualified solar leads and turn them into revenue. No credit or utility bill required, and we can work on all kinds of different properties. Small commercial, rental property, places of worship, schools, multifamily, condos, strip malls. Yeah, all of those places that you have heretofore 
been unable to put solar because they're unqualified or even residential leads that have DQ'd. Maybe you're a lead gen provider or know someone. All these types of projects we'd love to help you with. And we can give you more information if you want to reach out to me at nico at mysuncast.com and mention Massachusetts Smart Energy Program in the subject line. You know, when we talked a bit earlier about your previous startup, the one, in fact, that kind of led to what NZINC is today, you outlined sort of the waves of realization of the pivot away from the electric vehicles, plan, cost overruns, timelines not realistic, and advisors and VCs saying, this is where you, where you want to go. I look at the timeline for commercializing NZINC and I think, okay, did you think it was going to take this long? I'm sure the answer is no. And then part B to that question is, how did you go about funding this whole venture? And I think that that's probably a two-part answer originally and then now moving forward. The two aspects of it is um, everything always takes longer you know, than you think it's going to take. I've always thought with all my experience that when I really, really, really retire, I'll write a book that's called, I, I didn't think it was going to take this long. And the subtitle will be, and I didn't think it was going to cost this much. And, and by the way, the things that make it take much longer are not the things that you think it's going to be. So in our respect from, you know, engineering, we thought, yeah, you know, we're going to, we got this technology and we're going to do these things to get it done. And actually what has to happen is, the first thing that has to happen is the Navy actually has to get a patent because nobody's going to fund you if you don't have some rights to the intellectual property, right? So that takes a lot longer than you think it takes to get the patents. And then once the patents are issued, then you have to negotiate for the license yeah. from the Navy. And then, you know, you're dealing with the U.S. government and the U.S. government wants to make sure that, you know, you're a reputable company and you're not going to, you know, screw the U.S. taxpayers because that's where it comes from. So it takes a long time, you know, to get to get the license done. Mm-hmm. So in that evolution of who NZINC is, everybody looks at it and says, oh, my God, look how long it takes. Yeah, well, approximately three to four years of that were taken up with, administ- you know, administrivia, so to speak, but but necessary, absolutely necessary. How you asked, did, did this get funded? So uh, the first part was personal capital. So there's three, you know, co-founders. We put up money to start the company. And then, frankly, Deborah went to work like a, a lot of companies and God love her. She's the one who said... I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll go back to work and bring in money for the family while you go off and do this. So yeah, without, without her actually doing that, we wouldn't be sitting here talking. Let's pause there for a second, because I wasn't sure if we'd bring Deborah into the picture, but you went and done it. And I think it's worth a conversation about the most underestimated and uh, underrepresented power couple in the power industry, you <laughs> and Deborah Nucky. Um, for those who aren't familiar, now uh, the cat's out of the bag. Deborah Nucky uh, is is Michael's wife. I first met Deborah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure when. I remember hanging out with her in New York at a Bloomberg event and just being fascinated by what a truly fascinating person she is. I think at the time she had maybe just started at, at Kite Rocket to run their clean energy practice. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, what some folks will remember was that she actually ran global marketing for a little known company out of Petaluma called Enphase. How did you meet Deborah Nucky? So I had returned from England where I spent five years uh, working for a computer sciences corporation. 
unfortunately, uh, my wife passed away while we were over there overseas uh, from pancreatic cancer. So I was a single parent for a while. Came back to the United States, Washington, D.C., and my daughter, who was high school age, kind of did, it was almost like the, you know, the movie thing. Geez, Dad, <laughs> you, should, you should consider dating. I wasn't sure whether that was out of her self-interest or out of her desire for my self-interest. Yeah. But anyway, I got feedback uh, from my sister-in-law. She said, well, you should try this online dating thing called Match.com. No way. And I thought, and I thought, wow, you know, this is awesome for an engineer, right? Where you know you get to write down what your requirements are, yeah, and you get to uh, you know define kind of who you are, what you are, and and what you're you interested wrote the in. MR, the MRD for your spouse. The MRD, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which she would love as well because she's a marketing <laughs> specialist. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I went and uh, experimented with that. There were a lot of very interesting uh, people. Uh, we'll just leave it at that, but. People were, you know, were all, they're very nice, but all relatively typical. And then Deborah's uh, profile popped up, you know, when you, when you do your search thing. And, and the first was a picture of Deborah in uh, Arctic gear, dragging a sledge across an ice floe. And, and being a, a backpacker, mountain climber myself, I said, now, now this is an interesting individual. I get behind this one. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Did her profile disclose that she's an Aussie? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Okay. So you went into the first conversation fully expecting. Fully, fully expecting. Yeah. And, and all the, all the things. <laughs> right. And, and nationality, as you know, like I said, I, I grew up in Germany. So, yeah. you know, international was, was, was just fine. What was oh, yeah. more intriguing was, uh, number one, uh, her profile was beautifully written as you might mm. expect. And her background of not only what she was doing in terms of mountain climbing. And here she was uh, taking an Arctic expedition course. But the reason she was doing it mm. is because her dad was uh, an Antarctic explorer for the Australian yeah. government during the International Geophysical Year. And he was down in uh, Antarctica for about a yeah. year and a half. And, and she was going to, you know, like do a documentary and stuff. And I thought, this person is awesome. <laughs> Well, that sealed the deal. I mean, I've long wanted Deb to be on the show and, uh, you know, listening to your description of, of how she sort of showed up in your life is, um, it's fascinating. And I, you know, I feel like the Suncast audience definitely hasn't had a chance to get to know her the way that I think both of us would like for them to get to know her. So we're definitely going to have to get Deb on. Cool. Back at the lab, she was getting a job to help fund this little venture of yours called NZINC. So how on earth did you make it last for 10 years without funding? As I understand, you're currently out in the market raising essentially your first round of funding. So if I can backtrack for just a second. Sure. Because Deborah wasn't just, you know, uh, a source of, if you will, support or in, in terms of both, yes, dear, you know, you can go do this. But, you know, Deborah went and got her degree in sustainable design because we were both interested in sustainable design. So I want to just give her credit for, you know, because I'm sitting there talking about how I want to do electric vehicles. And she really has an interest in uh, sustainable design from, from housing, you know, energy, uh, solar. And so she was actually kind of an inspiration for helping us think broader 
than just wow. cars, right? Oh, wow. And so, very cool. So, you know, when you ask about, you know, what was, what's, what's dinner time around the table like? Well, you can imagine there's me, an engineer, and, and yeah. Deborah, not just a marketing person, but kind of a polymath, talking about how we could improve renewable energy. And right. so she went off and got her degree, her master's in sustainable design. And I just, like I said, I want to be able to make sure we give credit for yeah. her, her input into what we're doing, not just, you know, like you say, from not just the, financially, not just financially, but also as essentially a real founder of the company and helping in determine kind of its strategic direction. That is super cool. Yeah. The silent founder. Well, she's not so silent though. <laughs> <laughs> So when you ask how how did we do this, I mean, mm-hmm. part of it were savings, right? You know, you know. I mean, yeah. I was a senior vi- or a, or a vice president. Uh, we had a bunch of savings. You know, we started with the Navy around 2011, 2012, and we teamed for an ARPA E award, mm-hmm. and we were able to win that, which helped Fantastic. take us through to 2015. So we were funded, you know, by the U.S. Department of Energy from 2014 to 2015. Nice. And then from 2015 on until 2019, that was essentially our self-funding, right? And then in 2019, we were, uh, we took all the work that we had done. We now had a license. We had uh, essentially our our initial money. We were able to get an award from the California Energy Commission called CalSEED, stands for Sustainable Energy Entrepreneur Development Program. And that was phase one which allowed us to establish the lab at the Richmond Field Station. And then we competed in one phase two, which is where we're building a prototype. And, and also then we recently got Cal Testbed, which is we're going to work with the University of California Riverside to then test it. So phase one was concept, phase two is demonstration. So we're building a battery. And then phase three is test, which we'll be testing in the second quarter of next year with Riverside. It's all making sense to me now. Ta-da. Yeah, it's all <laughs> making sense. So we've interviewed both John and Danny here on the show. So listeners that have been paying attention will recognize CalSeed, CalTestBed. They know that John at some point was at, the, was the CXO, I think. That's at, correct. At uh, New Energy Nexus, which uh, basically helps proliferate what they've learned in CalSeed around the world. So, so if I can slip in a little thing, you know, I told you I left General Dynamics. One of the reasons was just government bureaucracy was just funny. And as I find it entirely ironic that the only reason that I'm sitting here having a conversation with you is because money from the U.S. Department of Energy and the California Energy Commission, both very large government agencies, are the ones that have actually helped us get here, right? right? I mean, without them, without that government support, right? Because we, you know, we pitched to VCs and everybody kind of said, oh, that's too early stage. Yeah. Uh, that's not interesting. Lithium ion is going to take over the years. world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's 10 years and you're shaking the bushes, shaking the branches. I'd love to hear from your perspective, having weathered a decade of really like proving this product out, getting the, getting the lab testing done. And and at the stage where you're ready to bring the product to life, what are some of the tough questions that you're facing in the VC realm as you are going out asking for this round? I think it's an A round, right? Mm -hmm. Well, part of it is that uh, you know, I use the euphemistic term of the lithium, lithium ion mafia, Yeah. right? The, uh, lithium technology has great promise uh, and sucks up all the investment oxygen in the room. 
right? So if if you're able to say, I've got a new form of lithium, or I've got a way to improve lithium, make it safer, reduce the cost, whatever, people will throw money at you. If you have a different technology, an alternative technology, then the proof standard gets a little bit higher, right? Since, uh, since lithium has been around since 1991, right, with Sony, there's a huge history Plus, there is a huge amount of, here's what it can do for the future, right? And everybody right. kind of looks at it and says, uh, lithium is the solution to all problems. Not quite true, but proof needs to be demonstrated. So what yeah. we find sometimes is kind of, if you will, the moving goalposts, which yeah. is either you need to do more testing. And candidly, at, at some point, you know, I, I feel like saying, well, you know, if I got all the testing done that you're requiring, I really don't need your money. These magical people called consumers will give me all the money I want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, and the other one just is because lithium, uh, you know, has uh, people, people are extrapolating some amazing things that lithium will be able to do or lithium-based batteries will be able to do. Then they take a look at what we're doing and they say, well, you know, that's not, that's not really enough. That's not that you're, you're, you're not, you're not delivering you know, enough energy or whatever, or low cost that these guys can do. And I tend to think that that's not quite true. There's some marvelous charts put out by Bloomberg, you know, showing curves coming down to, you know, just these wonderful uh, parametric studies that they've done where pretty soon uh, battery companies will be paying you to take their batteries. And I, I just don't think that that's necessarily going to happen anytime soon. But those are kind of the th- the challenges that any company that's trying to develop and deploy an alternative chemistry faces. I have a question that may be the same question, which is what are folks most skeptical about as you're going out trying to raise money, sure. not customers, but folks that would get behind you and fund this venture. So there's, there's several, uh, as you might expect. The first part is that there's a quote from Thomas Edison and I'm going to badly quote it. All right. But uh, I'll paraphrase it in best I can, which is the best way to take an honest man and make him into a charlatan is have him sell secondary batteries. There are so many companies uh, over the past several decades that have overpromised and underdelivered, whether that's on purpose or whether it's just naivete because they don't understand the full engineering process and what it takes to bring something to market. And the, when you actually put things into service, you know, the degradations that occur just to make something production-like, people become very skeptical. And so when you make a claim and say, here's what our, our particular chemistry can do, the first thought is, yeah, well, that's never going to happen. Or, you know, cut that number in half, right? Right. The second, though, is, is just as important is that Batteries have been part of our lives and part of companies' critical mission component for decades, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, with a lead-acid battery, like I said, which has done superb duty for the last 150 years. Yeah. If that battery doesn't work, your car doesn't start. And in an electric vehicle, of course, if your battery doesn't work, the same thing happens with backup systems and data centers and so on. Those batteries sit there very quietly doing a very, very important mission. They're mission critical, and therefore, it better work 99.999% of the time under all environments. Mm. 
And so when people look at it, they the people who are sophisticated investors understand the length of time and the testing that has to go into place or to be, you know, to be passed so that you can achieve that mission critical status. That if mm-hmm. I put your battery in that device or in that situation, it's going to work, right? Yeah. And so when you go in and you paint a picture of what it is that that your battery can do, but what's needed to get there, people are going, all right, instantly everybody who's sitting in the room suddenly suddenly becomes a resident of the state of Missouri. The show me state. The show me state. Prove it <laughs> yeah. to me. I'm going to use that one. That's great. So we talked about the pivots and turns and the various, I'll say externalities and various external teams, including the doctors and military, all the folks that helped you bring this together. We haven't talked actually about the one thing that you and I both know investors care about more than product or market, and that is the people. How did you select or they select you, the co-founding team for what is in Zinc? And how does that play a critical role in your ability now to take whatever you can bring in an investment and scale it to the next level? So, I mean, you said, Nico, the right thing, which is you know, and all the incubators we've been part of or accelerators and, and just the experience of pitching in front of investors, they invest in the team even more so than they invest in the technology. So now comes the, the, the question, uh, you know, I would say this, wouldn't I, which is I have an awesome team of people. The part that always- I sure hope you do. Yeah. But the part that always kind of befuddles me is how the hell- did I get these people and why in the world have they stuck with it for the last, you know, five to eight years? That is right. You know, and I've always liked to surround myself with really innovative, clever people. And maybe it's because I enjoy those kind of people so much. And I like to give them, you know, those kind of freedoms. They're willing to listen to my nutty ideas and I'm willing to listen to theirs, which I think is really key, that listening part, and not afraid to say, huh, I was wrong. I think what you're talking about is really great. We're going to go in that direction. So the team of people, uh, you know, other than Deborah and the other co-founder, which is Dr. Bill Kogan, who, by the way, interesting guy, investor, he's a biochemist. It turns out that there's a lot of stuff from Bill's background that kind of figures into how batteries are done right? Bio and biochemistry. A terrific set of senior advisors, both, you know, battery people as well as um, high technology people from General Dynamics and Computer Sciences Corporation. And then two of the chief guys on our team who hold this together is Meinrot Mockler, who is our chief engineer. Interesting that you brought that up because now that I think about it, everybody that's on the team has a has a specialty, but they're like polymaths, like Deborah. They're absolutely, they're really good at, at, I mean, really good at one thing, but they're damn good at a bunch of things. And so Meinrot, you know, not only uh, is he a really good battery engineer with, you know, a background in both battery and zinc, but he's also got his MBA, right? So he understands the business stuff. And he's like a walking Google, right? You can ask him just about anything and, and he'll know. And then Phil Baker, who is our head of operations building, background in ceramics technology, uh, materials engineering and battery engineering. He was senior vice president 
for Trojan battery knows everything about building lead-acid batteries. So on the one hand, you've got Meinrad, who knows lithium-ion batteries, forwards and backwards. And on the other side, you've got Phil, who knows everything about lead-acid batteries, forward and backwards. And we take those, those two groups and, and merge those together into building you know, this new kind of a battery by using what we know about lead-acid battery manufacturing and what we know about lithium-ion batteries manufacturing as well as their operation. And we put that together into how do we make a better battery, like I said, which is safer. Did you architect that team? Uh, yeah. How? <laughs> That's a, I, look, I mean, my, I'm, I didn't know, by the way, the story about Phil. And my jaw dropped visibly. Like if somebody's, I hope somebody's listening recognizes what he just said. The senior, a senior vice president from Trojan Battery, the largest lead, lead acid battery company in the world. Right. Well, they're they're not. No, Johnson Controls or Clarios is the largest lead acid battery, but they were one of the largest really? in the United States. Oh, in the U.S. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to imagine Rolls has got to be up there. Mm-hmm. What's the company out there's, of France? Well, that, oh, there's uh, Saft. Uh, there's Exide. At any rate, I mean, how did you pull this team together? That <laughs> I think that's. I mean, that's a genuinely honest question because I'm fascinated by the people side of it. I'm I'm embarrassed to say this. I, this is something you'd have to ask Deborah. Like I said, I I like talented people, you know, through connections, you find people and then you talk to them and you inspire them. So here's the thing. I, I While I can appreciate all of that, do you know what people like you and me who like to surround ourselves with smart people have a hard time doing? Deciding which ones we would saddle up beside <laughs> on a 10-year journey. Because the reality is like, there's no lack of people throwing ideas at you. Oh, You're yeah. a smart guy. You're well-connected. You have a ton of ideas that... And you're charismatic in a way that people are going to go, I want to help this guy. But yet you have to, at the end of the day, choose who okay. gets to go on the ride. So, so the, the filter comes with, have you delivered? Mm. It's kind of that simple. You're absolutely right. You know, a lot of people have kind of chimed in and said, yeah, you know, how about, have you done this? Or have you, and my question is, well, have you done this? Yeah. And Everybody who's been part of the team has actually delivered, has actually gone through the pain of coming up with something. So, you know, for example, you know, Bill Kogan, uh, PhD from uh, University of California, San Diego uh, in uh, biochemistry, not just been a researcher, but has actually co-founded three companies, had two successful exits. He has been literally through uh-huh. the coming up with the idea going through the pain of both raising the money and developing the product and then bringing it to market, right? Wow. Same thing with Phil, designing you know, ceramic products or, or batteries and taking and building factories and actually then managing them. Minerot, uh, lithium-ion batteries at Electrovia or uh, zinc products at uh, Fisher Cast, literally from coming up with what the product should be doing the research and development, and then building the hardware and stuff to deliver. So that would be, I think, the key aspect of, of our team is we've delivered. Yeah. And now, by the way, I have to say, I'll say this with all candid, uh, we've been working with a bunch of interns, right? Yeah. Uh, engineering interns, because yeah. all of us, as you can tell from the gray hair, have like 30, 40 years experience in the engineering business. One of the things that we want to do then is pass on that ability to deliver to the wow. engineers that are joining us. 
And I remember interviewing one of the young engineers and, and, and he was just awesome, right? He's a sophomore becoming a junior uh, at UC Berkeley. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I turned to him and I said, Matthew, uh, as an intern here, my job is not to make you, you know, an engineer because you're already, uh, I think, a good engineer. My job is to make you a great engineer. That's beautiful. Wow. What a privilege that they get to see how it's done. They're awesome. Yeah. And that's what we try and do is put them in that environment where they get to work with really, really good engineers and transfer that experience and knowledge to them. Mm, yeah. You probably are familiar. And if you're not, I'll certainly introduce you to John with John Powers at Extensible. Uh, I've heard the name. I don't know him. Oh, you've got to know John. I'm going to introduce you to John. What you just said is something he told me in, in similar words, not exact, but similar phrase about how he's built Extensible. And another big entrepreneur I really respect, um, who's doing pretty, pretty cool stuff, built a great software for demand management. I think, I think you definitely should get to know John. Cool. I have a, I have a different conversation because I think I have a different question. Cause I think this is something that when I think about who is the kind of person to pontificate, you know, how to pass on wisdom, you know, what you just shared with me is a great example of how you actually really think about you're thinking about how to, how to build up specific characteristics in those who will take the helm eventually. I kind of believe that in modern society, one organization sort of started as a way to, to share that knowledge, right? Ideas worth spreading, mm-hmm. um, as they said all along. And that's TED. Have you ever given a TED talk? Uh, no, I've been to uh, a couple of the TEDx's and two TED, one at TED India and one at TED Global in, in uh, 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 Edinburgh. Well, if you were given the opportunity to occupy the stage X or global, what would your TED talk be about? No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 20 minutes to change the world. What, what has intrigued me over the past couple of years, as, as you know, I've kind of made this entrepreneurial journey you know, to, to try and, and support this green energy revolution or accelerate the green mm-hmm. energy. What has intrigued me, Nico, is... Our present form of capitalism is based on higher and higher rates of consumerism, consumption, extraction. And, you know, it can be argued that capitalism is, as, a, as an economic philosophy is one of the most powerful forces of the, you know, 18th, 19th, and definitely 20th century. But as we move forward into the 21st century, is that economic philosophy of growth through consumption and extraction, the right way to go when what we're looking at is a renewable energy approach or renewable approach. How can those two philosophies coexist and in fact thrive? And so that's kind of the question that I'd like to kind of ponder with, uh, with a very intelligent group of people <laughs> that show up at TED conferences. Wow. That is, that's deep and profound at the same time. That, that juxtaposition of the, the coexistence of these two effective, philosophically opposed ideas, capitalism, perpetual growth, renewable, not always see, you know, seeking something that is full, full circle and perpetual in and of itself, not by outputs and inputs. Right. That's really cool. It reminds me of an interview that I did uh, very recently with Joachim Vanchella from Lind, one of the largest, you know, mm. the largest gas provider in the world. He answered the, a question that I asked very similarly. I asked, you know, what, what will we have to sacrifice on the altar of, of progress, so to speak, to 
achieve the hydrogen economy that you envision? And he said, well, it's not going to be a very popular answer, but we need green power at scale to decarbonize hard to abate industries like steel and these countries with increased consumer use of green electrons are going to have to recognize that we have a hard choice in the very near term to make. Either we get to use as consumers all these green electrons or we get to let those green electrons reduce the carbon intensity of the industrial complex so that we can continue to enjoy the life that we enjoy without the negative externalities mm -hmm. of the life that the industrial complex has created. So either we can consume all of these community solar electrons for your home using fancy uh, algorithms, or we can co-locate all this green energy right beside the steel plants and the mining facilities, and we can decarbonize that scale in the very near term. Which do you choose? I mean, that's the right. kind of philosophical question you're posing with this TED answer. Well, and the reason, wow. the reason I like that question is because it requires two dissimilar philosophies or approaches, you know, mm. to butt up against. I'll give you a quote yeah. that that I really love. I worked for a time at Nissan's design facility in La Jolla, California, mm -hmm. right? NDI. And it was run by a brilliant designer by the name of Jerry Hirschberg, who was really good at pulling together incredible people. And what he talked about is he liked to bring together the the designer, the stylist, whatever, mm -hmm. and the engineer, because both had different approaches to the solution and what he called creative abrasion. Mm. I would bring together these two, and because coming out of creative abrasion comes really innovative solutions. And so that's what I'm hopeful, is that if we, if we take a look at capitalism and what's really good about it, because there is good about it, yeah. and there's the renewable, but one is based on consumption and extraction, and the other one is based on reuse. If we bring those together into creative abrasion, what, what new economic philosophy will emerge and i can't i believe that it will be better in terms of its approach and it help accelerate us into the 21st century rather than retard us along the line of jerry and the impact that he left on kind of the way you think about creative endeavor and work are there other mentors that have left an indelible mark on you what life lessons or takeaways have impacted the way that you work from the folks that you worked with I mean, there was there was a bunch of guys in advanced design, and and they're they're just brilliant, creative people. But it was my first boss at uh, General Dynamics in the weights group, right, by the name of Wes Bachman. And Wes was uh, a self-made engineer. He was not a degreed engineer. He came out of the World War II generation. You, yeah. you know, he he didn't have an opportunity to go to college, but he worked his way up through essentially the factory an inherently smart guy to where he was one of yeah. the lead mass properties engineers. And so he gave me this, when we were talking about how, how we do things, you know, how we approach stuff. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what, Burrs. He goes, uh, on the weekends, I'm a flight instructor. He goes, I, he was a pilot, licensed pilot, licensed flight instructor. And he goes, so I'm sitting there with my students and we're, we're in the airplane. And I tell him, I'll tell you what, he goes, with all this fancy avionics we got in front of us, right? Distance measuring equipment, radar, and all that kind of stuff. Every once in a while, he goes, if we're traveling from San Diego up to Los Angeles, every once in a while, look out of the cockpit and make sure that the ocean is on the left. Hmm. And that, that particular approach, you know, is something, you know, I've, I've 
absorbed, which mm-hmm. is despite all that fancy data and all the, everything that you're doing, you know, you can get buried in all that kind of, you need to step back out and make sure that you're headed in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I like that. Make sure that the ocean's on the left. What do you think is the next big problem we got to solve in the clean energy industry? And maybe said a different way, it's what's holding us back. Obviously, it's reductive to say the next big problem. Yeah. I'm curious what's, what's up there for you. I think probably the biggest thing holding us back is an acknowledgement that we need to move forward. <laughs> I think that there are, you know, one of, one of the other observations I had at working at General Dynamics was to get a big company to turn, even as something as innovative as General Dynamics to turn, um, you know, required, required a lot of energy. Yeah. That's why, you know, we had a, uh, an advanced design group that was isolated from engineering, you know, uh, it wasn't anyway, my observation was that when new ideas were brought into the corporation, whether it was a new design or a new manufacturing, that what I called the corporate immune system would take over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether they were engineers, manufacturing people, marketing, finance people, everyone, mm-hmm. the corporate white blood cells would, would swarm over the new idea, right? And, and try and kill it. I think we have a lot of that going on in existing infrastructure. So there's a lot of the corporate immune system or even the, the industrial immune system taking over to try and stop and keep things status quo rather than realizing that it is absolutely necessary that mm-hmm. we start transitioning to new forms of energy. There's all kinds of both policy, government, and industrial reasons for not doing it. Mm-hmm except for the fact that uh, we're now reached the point of we can stop speculation. We, we know that this is going to happen. We do have the technologies. We need, what we have to do is start implementing them. And that's where then we come back to the, the TED question. Mm. Right now, there's a bunch of people who are framing the, the reasons why we can't do it using the 19th century or even the 20th century version of capitalism. And without... Mm really coming to terms with how we reward ourselves through extraction and consumption, <laughs> we're not going to be able to move forward quickly and economic and, and efficiently. Whoa. Is that the car that you designed? Yeah. Car? So, but well, here's the part that I thought you'd find fascinating. This was in the early days of CAD. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is we designed the whole car on CAD and we did all the surface development of the race car, right? No way. So what happened is I, I had the team carve one of these out of wood to give to the Japanese program manager. And this uh-huh. was the prototype before we did the final. But this is uh-huh. machined using the same data that made the real race car. Wow. Can you show me the ACM again? Oh, I want to get a picture sure. of that too. Yeah, you can see it on Google. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, but not with, the, with one of the creators behind it. There you go. So, uh, yeah, so to just to just to make it um, interesting. Yeah, there you go. So when people ask me, so what part of the missile did you design? And I said, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what a conceptual designer does. So, yeah. yeah. So we did the, the whole what it looks like and where all the equipment is on it and why it's shaped the way it is and so on. Yeah, that was my baby. Well, I know that this is way beyond my uh, weight class and capacity to probably to understand, but my kids would 
want me to ask, why are the wings pointing forward? Oh, I'll give you two reasons. One is we designed the missile to what's be called dynamically unstable so that it can maneuver uh-huh. very quickly. Oh, right? wow. Okay. Because it has to fly very close to the ground and it has to do this really quickly. And so mm. by forward swept wings, I can achieve that. And the other is for radar cross section. When the radar mm. when the radar comes, it bounces off into the fuselage and is absorbed by the radar absorbing material, and that makes it stealthy. How did you know that? How did I what? That's another. That's a whole other <laughs> podcast. <laughs> okay, I have, a, I have a question that's more pedestrian than rocket design. Okay, uh, but more advanced perhaps than than lead acid battery design, perhaps. Uh, it's certainly interesting to a subset of folks uh, in, involved in the energy sector. And I at least want to get your thoughts on it because you're both a designer and engineer, uh, a computer scientist and, and a thinker, a business person who can think of applications for things, not just devi- developing of things. What do you think of the current status of blockchain technology and how it's going to work with energy and energy applications and, and its role? Maybe not even blockchain. So like the whole blockchain and crypto ecosystem mm. and and how it might impact the energy infrastructure. The interesting attribute of, of blockchain is the ability to uniquely keep track of an activity or an item mm-hmm. forever. Yeah, and immutably forever. Immutably. It, thank you. And so to be able to track it store it, and then analyze it in, in, a, in a multivariate and multidimensional way will change the way we think about and deploy energy, mm. right? Yeah. Because think of all the different ways that what we're trying to do is track energy usage and how much we actually use versus how much was generated and where those losses occur, or what's the most efficient way, you know, the, the ability to actually monitor that on, on a real-time basis down to the device level will absolutely change the way we not just generate it, but use it, keep track of it, and of course, invariably, how much it's going to cost. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this before. And when you get into the energy space, you invariably have to learn about how energy works, not just how solar works. And there's a word especially used in the movement of molecules, but it applies to to electrons and the word is fungible, Mm -hmm. right? Oil is fungible. My drop of oil that I pump in from my pipeline into the main pipeline is no differentiated, no way molecularly able to differentiate it. What I hear from you is... The ability to, to, to track, store, analyze in a multivariate, multidimensional way the electrons and, and probably molecules as well at some, on some level is going to effectively persecute friction and loss in the system. Mm-hmm. It will be a, a level of, of, of efficiency that uh, the Germans will marvel at. <laughs> Indeed. The idea that you've just said is, you know, that my, my drop of fuel is chemically the same as except for the fact is trying to track what that drop of fuel actually is used for and the benefit that occurred from that uh, is just damn near impossible. 
Right. And it's funny, right? Because we sell, this is one of the big, we, we go way down the rabbit hole here. I was on the phone with my friend, Roger Ballantyne. He's trying to get the scope to emissions rules changed because fundamentally companies are paying to say that they're using clean energy mm-hmm. through Rex, which I'm all for, cause it actually, it, it helps to incentivize building these large plants. But as we, like, as we mature as an industry, we don't need to do that anymore because in fact, what we're doing is allowing greenwashing unknowingly right. where they still are going to suffer the risks economically of fossil decline, right? Yeah. The price implications of fossil decline, and that's not built in to, to the process, right? So, um, or rather it's not built into the current tracking mechanism. Mm-hmm. So by way of example, even if I, so if I, even if I generate the hundred kilowatt hours on a solar rooftop, the likelihood I'm going to consume all of those hundred kilowatt hours is pretty high. If I consume it on Walmart's rooftop and I claim it as somebody else and I pay for those wrecks, the amount of loss just at the transformer level to get it onto the grid mm-hmm. obliterates a large value stack of the wrecks that were bought to pay, right. to presumably claim the greenness. We get, that's a whole other esoteric conversation, but, but to your point, when we can track at the module level, at the anode level, when we can track exactly how the electron was created and, and eventually this will be true, know how, where it was created, how it was transported and mathematically know that that electron made it or not to the consumption point, or at least that this packet did the way we do with internet mm-hmm. packets now. When you imagine that, now the blockchain becomes a really transformative idea. Correct. I love it when folks think that it's a, a new idea, though. It's uh, <laughs> I would love for you to tell me if, um, like, as someone who has engaged in theoretical and design warfare for 40 years and has, has read lots of, of literature on it, where have you seen, have you seen books that purport to sort of tell the future that we're living now in ways that, you know, modern books like Ready Player One that talk about the metaverse oh, yeah. could, could, could only have dreamed of? So there's two writers that I, that I love, William Gibson and Neil Stevenson, who both kind of started in the 1980s with, you know, the term cyberpunk. And one, one or two, which are really fascinating, one is, one is called Snow Crash. And the other one is The Young Lady's Electric Primer. Both of them uh, are written by these two guys, which, which are essentially, I consider, like the Jules Verne of our, of our age, both of them. Fantastic writers. But the, the way they envision the future, Snow Crash talks about avatars, uh, virtual environments, the club, the Black Sun, where people, you know, have their avatars and do business, the conduction of business. Uh, people, believe it or not, uh, the hero of the story, whose name is Hero Protagonist, by the way. Uh, in the book? Yeah. Lives, but believe it or not, once again, this is like, you know, written in the 80s. He lives, he lives in a converted shipping container. Oh now, when did people really? start talking about actual using shipping containers for living spaces? And so Neil Stevenson has, has created this world. So if you want to have an interesting glimpse into where the future world might be, not just from the computer, but how that virtual environment has affected culture and what the United States might look like. Yeah. Take a look at the books by those guys. 
Is this, uh, just cause I want to look, I'm looking the name up and I'm trying to find it. Is this book, uh, by Neil Stevenson called Diamond Age? A young lady's yes. illustrated uh-huh. primer. Got it. Okay. Diamond Age. Fascinating. I'm, I've never heard of Neil Stevenson. Oh my God. He's got, and, he's uh, got another one called Cryptonomicron, which, uh, is, is a story of, uh, cryptography. And in a way it's a lot like, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, oh, well, that's okay. I, I'll, I'll, I'll come up with the, the, the author here in a second, but it bounces between World War II and the present day and how the two eras affected our understanding of privacy and uh, crypto. An incredible, incredible book. Another book is wow. uh, Reemdi, which means read me, but Reemdi, another. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Reemdi. Uh, once again. I'm looking up the bibliography of, uh, of William Gibson yeah. right now too, because I also didn't know much about William Gibson. Cryptography. Biography. What books do you like from William Gibson? By the way, folks will recognize the book Neuromancer. Yes. It's one that. And that, that's, yeah. that's the one that's probably the most well-known. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we link to these and, uh, and our Solar Warriors Suncast listeners are avid, voracious li- readers. So guaranteed we've given them. Well, what, uh, what's really, once again, what's just really fascinating to me is, is a reminder is these were written in like the 1980s. And at the time, mm-hmm. you know, there's a small group of people who are pointing going, this is great. And most people going, right. yeah, that's science fiction. That'll never happen. And here we are. Right. Yeah, welcome to Star Trek. And, right. And complete. Yeah. yeah. You know, we we are liter- literally very close to living exactly what uh, what uh, what uh, Stevenson was talking about uh, in his book Snow, Snow Crash. In Snow Crash. Right. Oh my goodness! This is I'm literally adding this right now to my uh, to my shopping cart. I've got one credit on Audible, <laughs> and you just earned it. Uh, <laughs> Michael, I'll I'll bring it back up to like a much lighter tone and. Um, before obviously we end on uh, on the on the usual crystal ball here, but do you, as an engineer, I have to imagine you are sort of weighing and measuring the, even the way that you move throughout the world. How do you structure your day? And in particular, I'm thinking about your evening and morning routine to gain efficiency. And, and you know, how have you manipulated that to to serve you instead of you serve it? Uh, I'm unfortunately it's really boring. Mornings uh, up until last week were were very predictable, which was get up early and take the dog for a walk. But unfortunately, what time's early? Our our dear sweet dog passed away suddenly. I'm sorry to hear and that. And so we're we're mm. kind of at a loss at the moment because mm. uh, she we had her what? for what 13 years, and mm. she was a real member of the family. Yeah. So, what time is early? Oh, uh, usually up around six, you know, five thirty, six okay. o'clock, take the dog for a walk. Mm. And then, um, so now I have to figure out a new routine. Yeah. And even how to present it. Yep. Got to get up, take the dog for a walk. Yeah. Uh, usually the afternoon or rather the, the work really consumes, right? And and yeah. most of your listeners will probably recognize this. You go to sleep usually thinking about what I need to do. <laughs> the next day Mm -hmm. and you wake up running through uh, visualization, right? Of what are some of the challenges and what do we have to work on? And and I do a lot of scenario planning in my head. Okay. But what that means is that when I come home in the evening and after Deborah and I, you know, cook dinner and she usually, she's the cook and I'm like the 
what do you call it? The sous chef who I, I chop things, yeah. right? I, mm-hmm. I, I chop and I clean, but she's the creative cook. Uh, we'll have dinner. And typically what we like to do is, is watch a good, a good series on, uh, on TV. Usually things yeah. like uh, mystery, mystery shows or uh, uh, I, well, you can probably tell I like science fiction. So we just finished watching, you know, The Foundation. We're watching Invasion you know, shows, yeah, shows like yeah. that just to kind of laugh and turn off, right? Yeah. The thing is, I haven't done as much reading as I'd like to. Yeah. Uh, usually it's just kind of like, you know, sit and stare for a while. I know. But, uh, no. but the one that we're trying to work through and it's, and, and it's been, it's been uh, unfortunately way too long is we've been reading Hamilton because, because oh, we yeah. both really loved the, uh, when it was out, you know, on the, play. On the movie, the version. Broadway, yeah. So we said, oh, yes, yeah. uh-huh. so we got the book, but we haven't finished it yet. But most of it, like I said, I, I hate to say it, is uh, I enjoy just watching some really good, well-produced shows on TV. Yeah, well, you uh, aspired to to create that lo- that level of entertainment and, and magic true. in your younger days. So it still, it still is something that captures your attention. Is, is there anything that for you has become a habit or a consistent practice that, in fact, is giving you leverage and impact in your life or your work? You know, something you do every day? It's an interesting question. And, and, and the, the answer is, because you've asked the question, I've had to reflect on it. And the answer is, I like to talk to Deborah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because she is a really funny and really, really smart. And so we'll discuss either things that are going on at work or things that are going on at her work or, you know, things that we've listened to on NPR and we'll debate those. And yeah. so the, the, it's, it's fun to sit. That's the habit is because Deborah is very witty and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very well read and I like her different take on things. And so, you know, we like to, to do the, what if, questions yeah. and extrapolate things or, uh, or try to explain stuff or, Hey, did you read this? How about that? So that, that's my, mm. that's funny that you asked that. Cause that's my habit is, uh, I like it. Carrying on conversations like with Deborah. Michael, where can folks who are so inclined best engage with you? Where do you like to be found? Well, there, there is, there, there is Twitter. So, uh, you're active I'm, on Twitter. I'm, yes, but I, I use Twitter as a relief valve. Uh-huh. So, um, okay. So buyer beware. Buyer beware. Um, What's your handle? It's, it's Mike Burrs. M-I-K-E-B-U-R-Z. Uh, I mean, okay. there is an official, there is an official NZINC uh, account on Twitter. Uh, I'm not a Facebook person at all. And what about LinkedIn? We're on LinkedIn. Indeed. Both the company as well as myself. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We'll link to both of those. Not everybody's on Twitter and sometimes we don't link to now, Twitter. Uh, if you just, are, then. just understand that on Twitter, uh, as a friend of mine once said, I have a black belt in sarcasm. So, Oh yeah. You got to be careful as we yeah, say, uh, it's, as we said to our children, sarcasm can quickly become scarcasm. Yes, exactly. So I'm not, I'm not real proud of some of that stuff, but it is, a, it is a way to kind of, anyway, but yes, LinkedIn is, is terrific. Fantastic. Well, let's end today as we always do, Michael, with a bold prediction. Well, one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal? Oh, geez, criminy. Boy. 
this is this is probably not not a very innovative statement, but the one that intrigues me is what's going to happen with bioengineering. I know that that's you know kind of a common answer, but mm-hmm. in terms of our our move toward being able to tailor uh, materials and even organisms, I think has has mm-hmm. just started, and I'm absolutely fascinated with you know where where we in aerospace engineering you know understood the physics of stuff and tried to take different materials and create different shapes with it you know to optimize it yeah i think our understanding of biochemistry and organics is really the next major revolution michael burrs is the co-founder and ceo of enzinc a revolutionary, simple, and elegant solution to the battery storage problem we all hope gets solved in massive ways. Michael, it has been really fascinating to have this discussion with you. Thank you for joining me on Sunday. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure, Nico, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Likewise. Mm, I want to say thank you once again to Michael. It is not every week I get an actual rocket scientist here on Suncast, and I learned so much. My brain was throbbing, and I was so excited. I remember running into the kitchen as soon as I finished this interview, telling my wife, that was an amazing interview. Oh, that was so good. Do you agree? Um, You know, in fact, since we recorded this interview, I went out and devoured that book recommendation, Snow Crash, all about the metaverse. And let me tell you that if you've not yet discovered Neil Stevenson, you are in for a real treat, especially if you like dystopian science fiction that sort of looks like real life. It was my favorite book of 2021. And now I'm on to Stevenson's Cryptonomicron. Okay. Okay. You should have learned a whole lot more today than just about an amazing bevy of books to read, but that's a pretty solid plus, right? What are you taking away from this jam packed episode? Would you mind taking a moment, please, to share your thoughts about this episode with me over on LinkedIn? We always put a post up about every single episode. So if you go to my profile and you click on my recent posts, you can scroll down and find this one very easily. And it's a real treat when I hear from you. And I know that Michael would like to know exactly what you learned, what resonated. Who else do you think needs to hear this story today? You can share that post on your feed and they'll see it or you could just tag them in the comments and while you're at it go ahead and click that like button on the post on linkedin it's super important for the algorithm and helping others find us as well well if you're eager to keep learning then you my fellow philomath can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion along with the social media links and book recommendations and so much more over in the episodes tab at mysuncast.com And a final thank you, of course, to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you can learn how you could partner with us and reach thousands of solar warriors and climate champions twice a week, just like you are. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.